It's urgent. We need to stay stirred up. We look here in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, and he gives three different reasons that we need a Savior, that we need more than just an idea of the baby Jesus in the manger, that, uh, in the manger, that we need salvation. And he says in verse 1 that we were dead. He says in verse 2 that we were enslaved and captive to the God of this world, captive to an alien force that influenced our thinking, that influenced the way we lived our lives. And in verse 3, he says that we were a children of wrath. So we were dead, we were enslaved, and children of wrath, children of anger. And that's the wrath of God, which the Bible says is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so, again, as we blow the dust off and we look, and we're going to get to the Christmas story. Don't worry, those of you that like the traditional stuff, we will get there. But we want to take this apart a little bit. I want to make sure that we tag some bases because, you know, I have always believed that a text without a context is a con, okay? Remember, that's a little ditty I learned in Bible college. A text without a context is a con, and so you have to be able to set these things in the proper context. In the context of that baby in the manger, the context of Christmas is the fact and the necessity that God had to intervene in the affairs of men or man was, or man was absolutely without hope and lost and no way to make his way to God. They tried it at the Tower of Babel, you remember, uh, if you know the Old Testament, they've tried many times. We, people try many times, well, if I just get my act together, then I can come to God. And what you're doing in that, what people do in that, they don't really run that line of thought through because if I add anything to the finished work of Jesus at the cross, if I add anything, it's an insult to the work of the cross. So if I need to get my life together to come to God, then I'm actually saying the cross wasn't enough. And it was enough. We know it was enough. And we celebrate that, of course, when we get into Easter and all. But, you know, to be mindful of these things is really important for us. So let's start again in verse 1. And I will look at, want to look at this a little bit more closely. He says, and you. Now, how many of you are from the South? I think, Francis, you're from the South. Yeah. All right. He's not saying you. He's saying you, and he's talking to this church, but he's talking to a group of individuals. So in the South, you say y'all. Or if you want to say more than that, say all y'all, <laughs> right? All y'all. So all y'all, he says, he made alive who were dead. What do you mean dead? Well, in the Bible, we see two different statements regarding death. We see physical death is separation from the spirit of the spirit from the body. Now, James chapter 2, verse 26, is, James says the body without the spirit is dead. And so when the actual life force that we contain as human beings, when that leaves, we're done. Yes, and that, has to, that could happen with injury, it could happen with illness, any number of ways, but all of us have a date out there where this body will stop functioning. And that's physical death. But there's also a spiritual death that God talks about very clearly all over the place in the New Testament in his word. And, and what he's talking about here is, remember when, it goes all the way back to Adam, you guys. When God said to Adam, he said, you know, on the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will certainly die. So when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, did they die? Not physically, but spiritually. 
the Spirit died. And God's work of redemption, redemptive history, you've heard me mention it before, from there all the way through, including today and on out into the future, is the work of redeeming fallen man from Adam's curse. We don't inherit Adam's sin, but we do inherit his nature. That was the reason that Jesus was born of a virgin, was to break the Adamic line. That's why the virgin birth is critical to our understanding as Christians. And why when we look at Mary, uh, yes, and we don't go as far as... uh, like the Catholic Church goes this whole thing of kind of deifying Mary and praying, you know, wanting to get you know, in good standing with Jesus by praying to his mom and all that stuff. I don't think that that's borne out in the Bible at all. But the virgin birth is critical to our understanding because that Adamic curse is broken. So there's a spiritual death. He says that you, he made alive, who were dead. And you weren't sick. You weren't just weak. It wasn't just a bad day. You were simply not living prior to giving your life to Christ. And humanity is born in that state because we need to be made alive. See. For you and I, being born spiritually dead It's kind of churchy sounding. I mean, if you've been hanging around the church for a while, you understand that terminology. But it's literally that you and I, there was nothing we could do. We couldn't get it right to save our lives. You heard that saying? I can't get that thing right to save my life. Well, in a very literal sense, that's what God's word conveys to us. Romans 6.23, the Apostle Paul writing to a church at Rome that he hadn't planted and he hadn't visited, uh, but to encourage the believers there, he, he says, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, again, the gift of God, it's one of those places where he talks about the gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this gift of God is eternity for any who will believe. He says, you know, the wages of sin is death. What's a wage? It's something you earn. But what's a gift? If I come over to your house for dinner, and we have a wonderful evening together, my wife and I, let's say we're visiting and all, and we get up to leave, and I haul out my checkbook, and I start writing a check. You say, what are you doing, Pastor John? Well, I'm going to pay for my dinner. That doesn't seem right, because your entertaining, your hosting me was a gift. You see, it's nothing I can do to earn that. I'm not going to sit there and insult you by trying to earn dinner any more than I want to insult the Lord for wanting to give salvation to any who would believe, to anyone who will come. Every now and then I've read about these stories about men on death row or men who have committed these horrendous acts of violence and crimes and so on, that there's a true conversion. And when I did jail ministry, I saw true conversions of, I mean, some really hardened guys. And I mean, and some of them I was blessed with being able to minister to over the months. And, and I mean, seeing the remarkable changes coming about in these people. It's like we were talking before church in the prayer room about how dark our society, our culture is getting and how much our light shines just by contrast to what's happening all around us. Because we live in a world of dead men walking. We live in a world that's without hope unless people grab onto the only hope that is sustainable and real 
the hope we have in Christ. That started with the manger, absolutely. But it ended with the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. The cross to pay for our sins, the resurrection to prove that death couldn't hold him. He's called the firstborn of the resurrection. And now through that resurrection, him being the firstborn, we are guaranteed of the same. And that not only that, when we come to Christ, that we are given resurrection power. That we now have the power to live lives that are not defeated and futile and, and worthless. That there's actually a purpose to our lives. Because he didn't just come and go straight to the cross. He modeled a life that is worth something in God's sight during that three and a half years that he ministered on the earth. What a glorious assembly of truths we have in the new covenant in the new testament as to the person and the work of jesus the messiah jesus the baby in the manger but jesus the man's man we looked last week at him going in and cleansing the temple making a whip out of rope out of cords and and going in and turning over the tables of the money changers and and just cleaning house essentially that's not some weak wimpy jesus there's a man's man there I mean, there's a guy that knew how to take care of business. But we, we are also told, we see that, that he was meek. Meek, the biblical definition of meekness is power under control. And that he had the power, he had the authority, he had the power to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. But he held that power back. And don't think that the temptations that Jesus endured were things that were not tempting to him because when the enemy came to him and said, worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. Would that have been tempting? You think? He could have bypassed the cross. It's just amazing, guys. When we look at God's word as a whole, how beautifully it links together, how wonderfully these things come together and assemble into a unified whole. He's guaranteeing us not just any life. Oh yes, a life to be lived that counts, absolutely. But he guarantees us eternal life. I remember the day very clearly as a younger Christian when it dawned on me that eternity is not a whole bunch of days. Think about it. See, we measure our lives by this little chunk of rock spinning in circles out here in the backwaters of the Milky Way galaxy, you know, this, amidst billions of galaxies and galactic clusters that comprise the universe. I mean, think about it. You know, when you think about the size of God, he says he holds the universe in the span of his hand. That's from the tip of his finger to the end of his thumb. And, and in our understanding, of course, we like to think that the earth is the center of the universe because we're pretty self-centered people. But in our understanding, we, we measure the universe by how far we could look through astronomy. And in my lifetime, it's gotten considerably bigger because we can look further. And, and yet, God is bigger than all of that. And out of all of that, he cares for you. He cares for me. He saw that things had gone terribly wrong on this little planet with these people that he absolutely adores and saw that the only remedy would be to take the body of a man for the creator himself to step into his own creation and get beaten and whipped and spat upon and slapped around and nailed to a cross 
for you, for me. Absolutely amazing. Verse 2, the Apostle Paul says that um, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in, in, once, in which you once walked. And the word walked there is the word meandered, okay? He says, you meandered through this life without Christ, you meander. We meander. We don't have any direction. We don't have a purpose. We don't have a destination. We just meander through this life sinning and being sinned against. You know, getting into conflict with other people and causing conflict with others and going through this whole deal. There's really no purpose. There's no unifying sense in our lives because we meander through being dead in our trespasses and sins. According to the course of this world, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. When he talks about broad is the way that leads to destruction, he's talking about the course of this world. The same thing the Apostle Paul talks about here. You want to be unpopular? Stand up for Jesus. Oh, I'm popular with my friends in the church. I, yeah, but, you know, put me in a group of unbelievers or put me in a, a booth. I remember being at a booth at a, at a festival one time where we were just giving out water. Our church was giving out water. Big deal, right? People coming up and almost to the point of violence, just, I mean, pushing against us and being absolutely rude. And, and we're just smiling. God grace for you. We love you. Jesus loves you. And it just drove them nuts. Because the course of this world is going any direction but the direction of God. Any direction except for the direction that Jesus would lead. And we, he makes it personal. He says, you, before you gave your life to Christ, walked that way. If you don't belong to him this morning, understand that the basis of God's judgment is thoughts, words, and deeds. And in the book of Romans, he says, you actually store up wrath for yourself. You increase that account of wrath against yourself. Why? Because God's a holy God. And sin is anti-him. Verse 2 again, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. He's talking obviously about Satan and his minions and, and the demonic host, a third of the angelic host that fell from heaven and the one whose world this is. I don't understand it. I don't understand why, but we know in Romans chapter eight, it says the earth is subjected to futility. That when Jesus went to the cross, he redeemed humanity for any who would come. He paid the price and now it's a free gift, a gift of God. Take the salvation that I offer. But he didn't immediately redeem the earth. We were talking, I was talking to someone last week about the book of Revelation where, where John is, he's just overwhelmed with grief and he's saying no one is found worthy. The, the, the scroll, the title deed of the earth is being held out. And he weeps because no one is found worthy to take the scroll and open the seals and then the lamb steps up. And I always kind of think when I read that in my mind, I think, da, 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 da. you know, it's like, here he is. He's there, he's on the scene. And yet, it's Jesus himself Finally, 
taking the title deed to the earth. And at that point, the wrath of God is poured out on this planet as he begins now to systematically purge the earth of sin. And it says in the midst of all of that, men still wouldn't repent. They still won't bow the knee to Jesus after all of the proofs that he's given. And he simply, it's, he loves us with a love that's incomprehensible. I don't understand the love that he has, but I will sure take every bit of it I can. But his love is so deep and so wide and so complete towards me, towards you. Yeah, we celebrate Christmas, but we don't just talk about the baby in the manger. We talk about a risen Lord whose life mine is hidden in and yours is too. And who not only does that, but he gives us the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as an earnest, it says, as a down payment on what? It's a down payment on heaven where we won't have to have faith anymore. My faith will be my eyes. I'll be in his presence. And it all started in that dirty little feed trough when there was no room at the motel where he was born and grew up and became a man. I mean, the message of the gospel, guys, is simple. Because of sin, because of the things we're reading here, that God took the form of a man and he grew up. And because God is a holy God, it's as though he fires the bullet from heaven because the penalty for sin is death, like we're talking about here. And because God loves us with that kind of love, that, that agape love, that thorough, comprehensive, all-encompassing love, that Jesus grows up and he stands in front of us and takes the shot. He takes the shot for you. He takes the shot for me. He takes death so that we don't have to taste it. I pray I'm in that group that rises to meet with him in the air. And if not, when I shed this body, it says to be absent from this body, I'll be present with the Lord. Praise God. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope that was born in that little feed trough. Verse 3, among whom also, I'm going to get to the good stuff in a minute. We're still in the part, you're not going to read any of this in a Christmas card. I absolutely guarantee, you know, and you were dead. With love, the Terry's. Merry Christmas. <laughs> not going to happen. Not going to happen. But see, the world likes to only push so far into the story because we get really uncomfortable when we have to look at ourselves and hold ourselves against a holy God. Verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We didn't just think about it, guys. We did it. And we heartily participated in those things. That's what he's talking about. And I don't know, maybe you were born in church and you converted to Christianity at three and you never really got out there and did goofy things. I applaud you. I didn't. I was the guy, a child of the 70s, that got into all kinds of goofy things. And I don't see a lot of value in going into listing our sins. Well, hey, let me tell you. Yeah, because I know what I've been saved from and I know what I'm being saved from. Praise God. Praise God. But he says that we conducted ourselves in that manner. And Christian, 
Check your heart. Are you still conducting yourself? Are you living like the world? There's a better way. There's a lot better way. It's called grace. We're getting to that. And we're by nature children of wrath just as the rest of the earth. Adam's nature, Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's how the world works. You want to talk about living a lie, living life without the Lord Jesus at the helm is just flat out a lie. It's just a lie. And he beckons to us, Christians and non-Christians alike. He beckons to us if we have not come to know Christ to come to know him for the first time. And to give this worthless life that has been lived according to the course of this world to him. To turn from my sin, ask him to forgive and to embrace him. And then he floods our soul with his Holy Spirit and begins to change us. This wonderful work of changing us from the inside out. I mentioned a few weeks ago, a pastor friend in California mentioning, you know, you don't want to try to clean the fish before you catch them. (laughs) And how many times I see people that are surprised, somebody out there in the world and they're doing some goofy, sinful thing. Why are you surprised? You're just obeying the nature that you know. You have not received a new nature because that's what he gives us. He gives us a new nature because he quickens our spirit to make us alive. And all of a sudden, those things that used to fit don't fit anymore. All of a sudden, that speech that used to happen doesn't, I'm offended by my own speech. All of a sudden, those things that I accepted are no longer acceptable. I mean, he just does this amazing thing. He changes, he renews our mind. And it's wonderful. In chapter 2, two here. We're not going to get down to verse 12. We're going to only go to the first eight verses. But I want to mention something. If your life does not belong to Jesus, you're alienated from, estranged from God, and hopeless without God. That's what he says. He, he talks about alienated, estranged, and hopeless without God. Part two. But God. Chapter 2, verse 4, the first two words, but God. And you see, I've put in parentheses underneath there, insert the Christmas narrative here. Because Paul goes through this whole indictment on humanity. You know what an indictment is? Like the grand jury gets together, they decide whether or not that person is like, you know, really needs to be held accountable for their stuff. And he goes through this whole indictment on humanity here in the first three verses. And then he stops and he says, but God. Because the work that we're talking about is God's work. The work of the incarnation was God's initiative. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1. (coughs) 
Because when we look at those first three verses, we see I was dead, but God. I was enslaved to this world, but God. I was a child of wrath, storing up wrath, but God. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with the child of the Holy Spirit. Remember we talked about the, the first century Jewish wedding a few weeks ago, those of you that were here. We talked about the betrothal process. It was a time from one to two years. That, the way that it worked was that, that a couple would be espoused. They might have been promised from childhood, but they were espoused and then they were betrothed. And when they were betrothed, they were actually, it was a legal binding arrangement that they acted as married, but they didn't consummate the marriage for a year to two years. And the husband went back to prepare a place for his bride at his father's house. And we looked at all the parallels with the things, the sayings of Jesus. And so here's Joseph betrothed to Mary. Uh, and it says, before they came together, talking about physically, that she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. The conception, the immaculate conception, was, com it was absolutely plain and simple. It was a miracle. It was one of those but God things. One of the things that... Uh, and I'm just going to toss this out because I don't like it. <laughs> I'm teaching, so I can tell you. No, seriously, I look in some of the translations. People that can't handle the miraculous, that can't handle the fact that Mary was a virgin when she got pregnant with Jesus. I looked in the Revised Standard. I, a lot of times when I'm studying, I, I go, through, I look at a bunch of different versions, and I, you know, see, you know, is there anything going on here. And this is a major doctrine of the Christian church, the virgin birth. I mean, it's not one that's up for grabs, and I will argue about it with people. I won't argue about certain things, I mean, goofy little things that, you know, we can have our opinions about. But this is a major doctrine. In the Revised Standard, it says, uh, uh, it talks about a maiden or a young woman. And the guy that was responsible for translating that was asked, well, why did you do that? He says, well, I don't believe in the miraculous birth. And I thought, well, uh, okay, I'm done reading the Revised Standard for one thing, but, you know, it's a miracle. Get over it. That you don't understand it doesn't mean it didn't happen. <laughs> Verse 19, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. So she comes to Joseph. She says, Joseph, I got good news, I got bad news. I don't think she did it that way. <laughs> Because it was all good news. Joseph, I'm pregnant. But don't worry, I'm still a virgin. I don't know how you would feel if your... Um, the woman you were engaged to came up and said that to you and you knew that you'd never had relations, but that was a little bit of a stretch for Joseph. He was struggling with this. He could have, I mentioned before, he could have had her stoned. The law was very clear that if a woman was pregnant out of wedlock, she could be stoned. He, he could have taken her right to the town square. There in Nazareth, which was a tough town, it was a military town, and it was a tough place. And just said, hey, you know, I'm done. 
But he doesn't do that because it says here that Joseph was a just man. And so he agonizes over this. How can I break away? I need to break away without damaging her. And he's in a crisis. I mean, it was a real crisis for him. It was a crisis of faith. So verse 20, but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Essentially saying, Joseph, relax, will you? It's the truth. It's the truth. I know you don't understand it. You don't have to understand it to know that it's true. Sidelight, this is free. Uh, so many times I run across passages in God's word, I don't understand them. I'll know when I get there. I'm not going to let that stop me from grasping that as truth. It's interesting how heaven deals with Joseph because God honors Joseph's authority. He says, she is with child. You shall call his name Jesus. He says, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus in verse 22. Joseph is given the authority to name the son, to name Jesus. Because it was the man's duty to do that. Even though that wasn't his child, he was still given the authority in the family to be the one who names the child. However, the angel is very specific. He says, Joseph, you can't call this baby after you. You can't name him after Jacob, your father. But you're going to name him after your heavenly father. Because Jesus simply means Yahweh is salvation. Interesting. I, I never, until I was preparing for this, I really never connected the fact that the family name is, was carried on. It was very important to the Jews. God is salvation. God is salvation. Interesting. For he will save his people from their sins. That's exactly Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 2, which brings us to part 3. You guys remember Paul Harvey? Those of you that are maybe a little older. I, you know, I, I, I loved listening to Paul Harvey on the radio. I mean, you know, when he'd get all done, he'd say, Paul Harvey, good day. You know, he had that, that kind of that squeak in his voice. But then he had the one deal in his radio program. He'd say, you know what this is all about. Now you're going to hear the rest of the story. And he would kind of stretch it out. I loved Paul Harvey. And so I was thinking about that. When I was looking at, well, you know, we want to get back to Ephesians and finish this passage because it has some really good stuff for us. And it really is. It's the rest of the story. We look at man's condition, part one, things you won't ever read on a Christmas card. And then we look at the account of Jesus' birth, part two, and part three is the rest of the story. Going back to Ephesians chapter two and picking it up in verse four, he says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because his great love, which he has loved us, he is rich in mercy. The definition of mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. That Jesus, Paul doesn't say he just was merciful. He says he's rich in mercy. 
We see that we talk about the riches of his grace further down in this passage as well. Paul wants to be sure that we understand that this is not just mercy in limited supply. This is mercy that is abounding towards us. That he is merciful. That he wants to exercise mercy. We are told in the Bible that mercy triumphs over judgment. And so he is a merciful, loving God that he has this great love that he loves us with and that shows up in the mercy that he showers upon us. Verse 5, he says, Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And then he breaks into this thing. He's going to talk about grace in a minute. But in parentheses here, he says, Oh, by the way, by grace you've been saved. I, I hope I never get tired of the gospel message, you guys. I know a lot of you guys are Christians, have been Christians since you were a puppy. I know that. No offense. But I mean, for a long time. I hope that you're never in a place where you maybe yawn a little bit when the gospel goes forth. When the good news, because that's what gospel means, of Jesus is shared. I've been a Christian for 35 years and I never get tired, get so excited. It's just like, oh God, you're so good. You are so fabulously good. I mean, way beyond anything I could ever deserve or merit. And that's what grace is. He showers his love on us. He showers his mercy on us. He showers his actual person on us in the Holy Spirit as he indwells us. He showers us with his grace. And it all started in that manger. It all started back when they couldn't find any place to stay because there was a census and they had to go all the way from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. Oh my gosh, he wants a census? Are you kidding me? What's going on with that? She's pregnant. I mean, I know how I would be murmuring if I had to take my, you know, my betrothed and travel 100 miles or whatever it was. It was probably about that. Uh, 80 miles, 90 miles on foot with a pregnant girl, to Bethlehem and get there and find out, oh, great. Everybody else traveled for the census too and there's no room for anybody to stay. They can't put us up and she's in labor. Isn't the plan of God amazing? I mean, isn't it amazing that God in his foreknowledge would actually foreordain these things? You think you get stretched. Think about Joseph at this point. What are we going to do? Well, you know, there's a little cave because I've been to the places, not the place, maybe it was, but I've been in Israel to where they kept the animals and it was probably like an open-ended cave. There are these rocky ledges everywhere there in that region and where they would put their animals would, just to give them cover from the weather would be in this rocky outcropping. They would put them under the ledge. And so here they are in a cave with, with a trough that the animals drooled in while they ate. I mean, it wasn't clean. This wasn't a sanitary deal, guys. It was a mess. And I don't know if the, it doesn't say whether the stable had been mucked out or not, not going to go there. Those of you that, are, that know agriculture are going, oh yeah, I know what that means. But the point is, it was not a, it wasn't a clean deal. And think of the creator of the universe just got born. I mean, it's, a, it's just amazing. It boggles my mind. 
Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up together, verse 6, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. When he talks about you're dead, I looked at the Greek word. It means dead. <laughs> Actually, the word is necros. And if you're, if, you're, if you're in the medical field, necrotic, and you know what necrotic tissue is? It means dead tissue. It's where we get the word dead. It means dead. And when he says he made us alive, that's only, that's a, that phrase, it's one word that is used to translate made us alive. It's one Greek word, and it's only in two places in the entire New Testament, in the entire Bible. Uh, and and it's, it's here and in Colossians, he talks about it. I think it's Colossians. But it's simply that he imparts life to us. It's, now, Paul describes it um, in Titus, I believe it is, where he talks about being washed in the water of the regeneration, because regeneration is basically taking that which is dead and, and imparting life to it. And that's literally the transaction, you guys. It wasn't that I was dead and he decided to fix up my dead body. He says, no, stay dead, thank you. I don't need that. I'm going to give you my life. And you're going to keep your personality and your distinctives of what makes you you. And yet, you're going to be a different person. You're going to be a new creation. How does he do that? I don't know. I do know that it's a miraculous thing. It's as miraculous as that virgin birth that when he comes in and he starts setting up house and he starts changing us, conforming us to the image of his son, that it's a remarkable process. And I would never want to go back. He says, you're no longer a slave or a citizen of this world. And it says that, that he has made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. It's contrasting to walking according to the course of this world. He says, you were walking according to the course of the world, and now you're sitting in the heavenly places, implying rest, implying walking to the according to the course of this world. That's work. And believe me, it's work. It's hard out there. It's tough. Now he says, I've seated you in the heavenly places in Christ. That's rest. I love Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we look at what are called the Beatitudes. I love to read the Beatitudes. You see a whole picture of the Christian life, a whole progression there. Notice they're not called do-attitudes. They're be-attitudes. They're ways of being, not ways of things of doing. Like I said, the wages of sin, that's something you do. A wage is something you earn. But the gift of God is not something you have to do something for. It's a gift that's freely given. And the, the, the language in the New Testament is very, very clear. This is God's work. This is his work in us and through us. That in the ages to come, he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace in his, and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God actually commits himself. Did you know that long before you committed yourself to him, that he committed himself to you? You ever thought about that? That God would commit himself to me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While I was out there banging around, walking according to the course of this world, doing as I please, sinning the whole time, not giving any thought to it. You know, when you, you spend a, a bit of time around an unbeliever, you begin to realize something. There's no consciousness of sin. 
Because dead men don't think about it. You're just not mindful of it. There's not a consciousness of it. And yet for the children of God, because he has now infused his very life into us, that consciousness of sin comes up, doesn't it? And, and we find ourselves conscious of it, being convicted by our actions. And he says, uh, again, he says, all you have to do is confess it, is bring it to me, confess it, and it's gone. I'll cleanse you, I'll forgive you, and we'll walk together again. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives is that of empowering. It's his power working in us to do and to, uh, according to his good pleasure. And what he simply asks of me is to cooperate with that work. That's all he asks. That's all he asks. Just cooperate with what I want to do. And I'll do the work. You just simply be tuned in to what I'm doing and let me do the work because I can block the work of God in my life and effectively block his ability to bless me through it because he wants to bless us. He's a loving God. He's a blessing God. He delights in blessing his children. But if I want to block that, yeah, I'm going to have my own way. Yeah, well, we've never done it that way before. Yeah, well, I don't like that person. You know, we get these things. I mean, oh, don't look at me with Sunday faces. You do that too. <laughs> but the point is, is that we can block the work that God wants to do. And he says, no, just cooperate with the work of my Holy Spirit and it'll be good. He commits himself to showering his grace, his great love upon me and upon you, not just for time, but for eternity. He says that in the ages to come, in verse 7, that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Now, he, he talks about the riches of his mercy, and then here he says the exceeding riches of his grace. In other words, inexhaustible supply. We were talking before church, I think in the prayer room, we are talking about where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And the actual, the original language there for the new, in the Greek, the Koine Greek in the New Testament, it says where sin abounds, grace superabounds all the more in a sphere of glory. That you cannot outsin the grace of God. You absolutely can't do it. He says, how should you, how, who died to sin, still live in it? Because the people in Paul's day, evidently in Rome, at the church there, they were saying, well, you know, in view of the grace of God, can I still sin? He said, God forbid, may it never be. How should you who died to sin still live in it? Why would you want to? And yes, we sin. But the Bible tells us we have an advocate with the Father. That Jesus himself is our lawyer. And he says, no, Father, I'm here to defend that. There's someone that belongs to me. Glorious. He says, for grace you have been saved through faith. I'm glad he puts that in there. Do you believe it? Do you believe this stuff? Is it Sunday morning ritual? I don't have anybody in mind. But it's a good question. Do I really believe this stuff? Do I walk in this stuff? Oh, it's easy to believe in baby Jesus in the manger. He can't hurt me. He can't impact my life. Ever did he, I'll read it to y'all sometime. Uh, see, I said y'all. What do you think, Francis? Yeah. Uh, I'll read it to, to all y'all sometime. 
It's called $3 Worth of God. And, and it's, about, it's a little saying, it's a little thing that somebody wrote. This is, I don't really want to be confronted by the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of the gospel. And I don't want to be confronted about having a new life. I just want about three bucks worth of God. Thank you very much. And my heart is grieved because that person is losing out on so very much. Yeah, it's Christmas. I'm excited. This Christmas, I'm really excited because the Lord has done some wonderful things. Towards this time of year, I start kind of looking back over the year. I know many of you do too. And, and just saying, Lord, look at the things you've done. I mean, I thought he was taking me to Colorado to take some corporate job. And it's like, we've laughingly said, God has a sense of humor. I mean, calling us to Newburgh, Oregon to pastor a church via Colorado from Northern California was like weird. But we praise God for the things that he's doing, the things he's done, and the things he's yet to do. We're excited. But he says through faith, because through faith, that's believing. Believing, you've heard me say it before, replace that word with trusting. Oh, I believe God, but do I trust God? Ooh, that's a little more serious, Pastor John. Do you trust him with that thing you're dealing with? Do you trust him with the person sitting next to you? Oh, that was tough. No, seriously, do you trust him this morning? Faith is essential, but it's not an idle faith. We've been looking at that in the Gospel of John where it talks about the people believing. 98 times in that one Gospel, that word is used, pistuo. And it's a verb, it means action. It's a, ta- it's a faith that is life-changing. It's like, I believe this stuff, so therefore I'm going to put it on. I'm going to apply it to my life. And that's my prayer for the people in this body, that we apply these precious truths to our lives. And that's how we grow, piece by piece, verse by verse, line by line, principle by principle. It's how we grow. It's how we're conformed to the image of his son, which is God's design for each and every one of us. And we're all at different places. But praise God that he's called us and that he's given us these precious, precious truths. He says in verse eight, he says, for grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Where we started. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. I praise you, Lord, for the precious gift of your son and for the gift of eternal life to any who would believe. And Lord, only you know the condition of each heart in this room. I pray, Father, that as you, by your Holy Spirit, through what your your word calls the foolishness of preaching, as you move through this place and as you touch hearts and as you woo people, Lord, that you would find hearts that are yielded to the work that you're doing, that are yielded to perhaps receiving Jesus for the first time. And if that's you, I want to encourage you, my friend. Let go. Let God. Let him do the work that he has desired to do from eternity past in you this moment. Come and talk with me afterward if that's what you're doing. And Father, for 
each of us, as you put your finger on different things in us, in our lives, Lord, as your spirit convicts, I pray that you again would find hearts that are yielded to you, that as we celebrate the birth of your son, it would be more than tradition, but that there would be these sobering truths that you bring about through your word and by your spirit that we would look at, and Lord, that we could just bask in your love, because it was for love that you did it all. And that your love for each of us is poured out. I thank you, Lord, for each one here. I thank you for uh, the message of the gospel that, that starts in that manger and ends with the cross and the resurrection, guaranteeing life to all who would come. We praise you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for this Christmas. Let it be one that we can rejoice in you. And we, we honor you now. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, give you peace this Christmas. Enjoy your families and the stuff going on. Uh, practice right afterwards for those of us that are going to be serving this evening. God bless you. We're not going anywhere yet. Uh, is Stacy here? She's in back.